please give a big hand for Carolyn. I sure hope you guys feel that way in 45 minutes. Um, my name's Carolyn Walsh. I'm an alcoholic. I got sober March 22, 2001. I belong to a cute little group we started up during the pandemic called the Cloverdale Newcomers Group. We started an in-person newcomers meeting because we could and we needed to, and I'm really proud to call it my home group. Um, I am the kind of alcoholic who had to write down, say thank you. Um, so just so you have an idea of the type of self-centeredness you're going to be confronted with here. Um, but truly, um, Elizabeth and this entire committee have been beyond amazing. I'm sure you guys have experienced it all weekend too. And uh, I just feel so um, so privileged to get to be here with you. There really aren't even words. And I could spend the next you know half hour gushing about every other speaker, the panel, the skit, the workshops. Um, I went to the Spanish language workshop and uh, got to enjoy the hard work of the servant doing the translation so I could listen and, and learn. And I am just so incredibly grateful to have had these experiences here with you this weekend. I made a new friend who's celebrating her 30 days today, and I'm super happy for her. And I just, um, this isn't the life I deserve. This is the life Alcoholics Anonymous gave me. And I know um, we don't, you know, get up to, to talk about our drunkologues and stuff, but when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had no recovery. I couldn't relate to your recovery story because I had none. I could relate to the ugliness because that was all I brought with me when I got here. So bear with me. It won't last all night, um, but I think it's important we know how we got here. Um, and the other thing that's really important to know is that how I drank, where I drank, what I drank, who I drank with, all the stuff that went down, um, that's not what made me an alcoholic, um, but it, it's how I experienced my alcoholism, and, and sometimes it's how we relate. And so um, I grew up, and this is great because you guys don't know any of these places, um, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is um, just north of um, North Dakota, um, and it's everything you would expect based on that description. Um, I grew up in the wrong part of a tough town, and um, I, I really, there, it was just, if you Google it, you can see it. It's in the murder capital of Canada on a per capita basis, and, um, and that's domestic violence and alcoholism. And, um, and that's where it began. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I don't have a great first drink story. I, I, I love the people who can tell you what it felt like, where they were, what happened. Um, I took what I could get from where I could get it as far back as I can remember. Um, I, I did whatever I could. Um, I don't have a pretty story. Um, I sniffed rubber cement in the basement. I stole my parents' alcohol by the time I was about 10, 11 years old. I was taking enough that they could tell it was missing. And I grew up in the kind of alcoholism where people weren't like, oh my God, our child is drinking. They were like, oh my God, she's drinking our booze. And, and like, so that was, that was the problem. Um, so I had the supply-demand issue come up pretty quickly. Um, and, and that's like, the alcoholic mind is, is really an incredible thing because um, I don't know where I got my ideas. Um, but I'm like, well, I'll try this. And I figured out, you know, I'm still in elementary school, that my mom's little blue pills made the beer work better. And, and that, was, that was my childlike relationship to what I was doing. 
Um, many years later, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I was mixing halcyon and alcohol for effect while I was still in elementary school. Um, this isn't a story like, where do you get to bottom from there? You know what I mean? Like, we're already sniffing solvents in a basement, taking trichol. Like, how does that happen? Well, it happens when, when everything collapses. And, and I can give you all sorts of stories of the dark years there, um, you know, what happened eventually in this, this violent alcoholic home, in this violent alcoholic neighborhood, um, was, you know, it was my job to kind of disarm the alcoholics a lot of the time. There was a lot of things that happened in that home, and, and there was one night, I just, it all went wrong, and everything I'd tried to prevent all my life had happened. And I had one of my parents in jail um, for attempted murder charges, and the other one in the hospital, um, kind of barely making it. And I looked around, and um, you've got to think of this like sort of 14, 15-year-old bravado um, coupled with this already progressing alcoholism. And I'm like, how hard could life be? Like, just get me away from these lunatics, and I'll be fine. Like, I'm just going to go do life. Like, and so I'm like, I'll do it on my own. It'll be better. And I remember consciously looking around, trying to figure out what went wrong. And I'm like, I know what the problem is here. It's marriage. Like, I, I didn't think alcohol was the problem at all. I'm like, marriage is clearly a bad idea. Um, if I avoid marriage, I should have a happy life. And, and so this is like my life plan at 14, 15. I'm like, I can drink like a pig as long as I never get married, and life will be good. And, and I kind of stuck to that. Um, that's a spoiler alert for a long time. Um, but, but I didn't, it turned out life was harder than I thought it was. Um, and it turned out that my problem with alcohol was progressing more quickly than I realized. So by the time I was 17, um, there was nowhere left for me to live. I was on this early assisted living, it, it kids' welfare, essentially, like when they're trying to keep you out of the foster system, but you're still a mess. And, um, you know, they pay your rent direct to the place. But, but who wants to rent to this, like, 15-year-old alcoholic who's already on social assistance? Like, nothing good's happening here. And so I screwed it up in a few places. And these were, like, sort of skid row rooming houses. Um, you know, you rent a room, share a bathroom, get a little fridge, you can keep some cheese in. Like, like basically where alcoholics go to die. Um, so, like, this is my start to life. And, uh, and I'm getting to the point quickly where these places won't rent to me. Um, and it's like, okay, so now I've got this housing problem. Um, and I'm positive I'm not the only person in the room this is true of, but I was a good job getter. Like, I could get jobs. Um, I could keep them for approximately two paychecks. And um, so the, I was running out of places to get jobs because I didn't keep jobs. I couldn't find anywhere to live. Um, I had got myself mixed up in, in a whole bunch of things that a, a little kid doesn't belong mixed up in. And uh, without getting into too much about that, I witnessed a murder. Um, it was a terrifying experience on a whole bunch of levels. And I had no structure of people I could reach out to, to to support through this. And I was sure that something really bad was going to happen to me. Um, I don't think I was central to anything that happened. I'd built up a lot of stuff in my head. I just had no place to figure that out. So I realized I needed to get out of town. 
I had all these immediate problems. I wanted to get out of town. I needed a job. I needed to get away from these people. Because the people who want to hang out with the 14, 15, 16-year-old girl who lives in the rooming house, they're not good people. Um, like, I, I needed to get away from that. I needed to get a job and try to keep it. I needed clothes. I needed food. I needed dental care. Like, I, I needed stuff. And I wasn't going to get married, which would have been one way to get these things. Um, so I joined the Canadian Armed Forces. And this happened after a day of my best thinking. Um, I, <laughs> I went to a bar because um, I could get into, you know, the, the bars that serve the kids. I'm sure you guys have them too. And um, I, I went and I ordered a couple pitchers and, and drank and think, drinking and thinking all day to figure out what I'm going to do about these life problems. And I came up with two options, and I was so happy. I had a plan and a backup plan. I walked in here with no options. Now I've got two options. I could join the Army or try prostitution. I was thrilled that I had um, these great list of choices. Um, I figured I'd try the Army first. That was a good decision. Um, and, and a lot of people I've heard in the room share their story that, like, I joined the Army and then my drinking got really bad. Well, I joined the Army to try to get away from my drinking. It was kind of my first geographical cure, and I was 17 years old. Um, it didn't take long until people were kind of pointing at my drinking, like it was out of line. Um, and I'm confident that your armed forces is no different than ours. There's a bit of drinking that goes on there, and the behavior is kind of wild. Um, so when my drinking stood out in that setting... Um, and people are pointing at me like I've got a problem. It's like, uh-oh. Um, for the first few years, people laughed. They called it shenanigans. It just, nobody made a big deal of it. You could kind of, I don't know, build up your social status a bit by, like, the drunker and the crazier you got, the higher you went up the social ladder. But then you kind of tip over it at some point, and people are just not laughing anymore. Um, and that's what happened. I... Um, I took a military vehicle I had no reason to take. I was heavily impaired. I brought people with me that I wasn't supposed to have with me. They call it fraternization. It's a big $10 word for doing stuff you shouldn't. And, um, and I had an accident uh, and in, in this vehicle I shouldn't have been in. And a civilian who saw this large military truck driving the wrong way, hitting light posts, thought they'd phone the police. Um, I thought it was very unreasonable. I think about it now, and uh, yeah, I think that maybe they ought to have done that. And, uh, and I, it, they couldn't brush this under the rug, because there were civilian police involved, military police. It was a mess. Um, they put me on um, Canadian Armed Forces is counseling and probation for misuse of alcohol. Um, any service members, ex-service members here, it's um, more commonly referred to as a career-halting action. Um, and uh, they sent me to the detention barracks, which is a nice name for military prison. And, um, and I had some time to think about my drinking. And uh, I, I figured out some things that are in our book without ever having seen our book. I figured out that I couldn't take so much as one drink. Every time I took a drink, it went down, no matter what else I told myself was going to happen. Um, I got out of there. They have their own version of um, like early release. And I was sure that if I don't drink, I'm going to be okay. Um, I just didn't know I couldn't not drink. Um, I, I hadn't understood that yet. Um, I didn't know that the allergy was the reason... What happened when I drank happened. I thought it was just because I was a bad person with weak willpower. I didn't know I was bodily and mentally different than other people. And once I took a drink, 
it was going to be that baffling feature of alcoholism, and I was just going to get thirstier the more I drank. Um, and I couldn't be drinking to get drunk, or I'd have stopped at drunk. But I didn't stop at drunk. I hurtled past it and kept going. So there was obviously something going on here. Um, I didn't know, though, about that insanity that precedes the first drink, that mental blank spot, that inability to remember with sufficient force the suffering and humiliation of a week or a month ago, that we're without defense against that next drink. I thought I could just try harder. And that is the single most heartbreaking thing that an alcoholic who doesn't understand what's wrong with them can think, that I'm going to solve this problem by trying harder. But I was going to try harder, and so I was staying in the barracks. I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't talking to anyone. If I isolate myself, um, I won't drink, and everything will be fine. And it's like the story in the big book where, you know, you isolate yourself on an island and somebody shows up with a bottle and ruins everything. Um, Some guy got his brother, sent him a bottle of Screech. If any of you have ever traveled to Newfoundland, it's a thing. Um, And I'd never tried it. And I thought, well, I'll just taste it and see what it tastes like. Um, And so then on the bus on the way back to military prison, I had more time to think about my drinking. And... um, I came to the only conclusion I could come to, and that was that it's hopeless, that there are people in this world who have good lives, and there's people who live circling the drain, and I'm just going to live circling the drain, and I'm going to try to make the most of it. I I literally gave up in despair at, what was I, 21 years old. (laughs) So then things got bad, Um, and so we're going to hurdle through... The rest of that, um, it's what I call the dark years. Um, I sobered up at 30, and so here's 21. And in between, um, what happened was just geographical cures, lost jobs, bad relationships, broken hearts, on it goes. Um, I developed life skills like siphoning my gas and giving myself stitches and, and just, you know, those really important life skills you develop. Um, and somehow managed to hold a job, because that's how we are as alcoholics. Um, what happened during those years that got my attention was my mom died directly as a result of her drinking, about halfway through there when I was around 25. And um, I, I um, so um, I found her in her apartment a week after she died. And she died of alcoholism. Um, And she died of alcoholism in the way that alcoholism takes alcoholics. And um, that is in an ugly, sad way that is dehumanizing and so much not what we deserve. This disease is destructive and evil. Um, And that's, somebody talked about my love for Alcoholics Anonymous. and That's where it comes from. Every time we win one, even for a day, I am like cheering because I don't want this disease to win a single soul. And um, that experience of finding my mom was obviously um, devastating. Um, I had a couple epiphanies, the kind of things I hear people talk about in meetings like um, that moment of clarity where they just suddenly stopped drinking because they had this moment of clarity. Well, I had this moment of clarity that the problem in our house hadn't been marriage. It had been alcohol. That everything that had happened in that house, all the harms anybody did to one another, including me, had been alcohol. That all this craziness in my adolescence, my experience in the military, everything else, the problem had always been alcohol. 
um, and that it was alcohol that had taken my mom. Moment of clarity, like clear as a bell. And I drank what she had left while I waited for emergency services, and I've never hated myself more Um, because I didn't understand what was wrong with me. I knew that alcohol was a problem, but I didn't understand what the problem was. I didn't understand that I had no effective defense against that next drink, that without a solution, some sort of power greater than me intervening between me and that next drink, there was always going to be a next drink, and that I didn't have a single tool in my toolkit to face life without it. And so then it got dark. (laughs) There were some... Sorry, guys. It's just it's how it went down. Um, I I had a brother-in-law who had some some recovery in another 12-step program, and he passed away unrelated to his disease. And uh, they had a memorial for him at his group and invited the family, and I went. And um, I'm in this 12-step meeting, And um, to tell you how deep my denial was, um, these people were, like, reaching out to me, giving me phone numbers. They want to go for coffee. Like, you've seen this. You've heard this. Um, And I walked out of that meeting thinking, they know. I am the coolest person they have ever met. (laughs) These people can't wait to get to know me better. Um, I thought they were nice and maybe a little sad and lonely, but, yeah, they're nice, right? Um, Like, completely, like, hello, like, like a neon sign on my head, this girl needs a program yesterday. Um, But I I didn't see it. Um, And I had other near misses with, um, with, with Alcoholics Anonymous and people trying to help me. I went to, um, and I, I, something I forgot when I said thanks is to the Al-Anon speaker and those who um, are here from the Al-Anon family groups, I appreciate your participation. It means a lot to me. Um, my first 12-step meeting was when I was about 14, 15. I went to an Alateen meeting because I thought it was for teenagers who drank too much. Yeah, right? Um, I had this one little moment where I thought maybe I'd ask for help. Um, and those kids were talking... Um, honestly about the fact that they were having difficulties at home, that alcohol was affecting their family lives, and I wasn't ready for that conversation. Um, I had a 10th grade teacher try to 12-step me. The Canadian Armed Forces put me through treatment a few times. Like, people tried. Um, What happened that I finally got sober after all of this? Um, My dad died in um, 1999, Christmas Day, um, he died in a room full of his friends, but they didn't notice till the next day. Alcoholism. This disease is ugly, and it will destroy us left untreated. Um, and after he passed, I, I had a, um, a different experience. Like, uh, so I, I, did, I didn't believe in God, but I feared God. I'm, nobody relates to that. I had a lot of anger at something that didn't exist. Um, I, when my mom died... I was reasonably certain she'd slip into heaven on some sort of technicality in spite of how she lived. Um, When my dad died, I wasn't so hopeful. I was pretty certain he'd be burning in eternal damnation. And and in my twisted state, um, I was really troubled by that. And so um, by this point, um, I'm I'm barfing up these green gelatinous lumps. um, And I'm not even leaving the couch to do it. I'm just barfing these on my floor and leaving them there, and they're soaking through the covering on the hardwood floor and leaving these green stains. This is how I'm living. And in that state, I am begging God for mercy on my father's soul, this God I don't believe in. Um, And I think, don't know, um, but I think I kicked open some door 
for this God of my misunderstanding to start tapping me on the shoulder. I didn't get sober then. I didn't show up in AA right away. It was December. That was January. December, I finally started coming to meetings, and I didn't get sober until March 2001. But I I think it started something in motion, um, a space for the God of my misunderstanding to try to pull me out of hell. And, um, you know, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that day, um, there was not um, any big dramatic thing that had happened. (laughs) The drama was behind me. You've heard little bits of it. I spared you most of that. Um, What happened that day uh, was there was no drama. I I regained consciousness in my car in uh, bad parts. By then, I'd relocated... (laughs) Relocated. It sounds so sophisticated. I'd, I'd run um, to Vancouver, BC, um, and so I was living there, and uh, I regained consciousness in my car in a bad part of Surrey. Um, it was a different day than I thought it was supposed to be. Um, I didn't know why I was there, how long I'd been there, and the inside of my car looked a bit like a crime scene. There were blood splatters. I didn't know where they'd come from. Um, And it wasn't really that different than a lot of other days, except I had this idea that couldn't have come from me, that um, there isn't going to be a later to get help. It's today or never. And I drove home, and I started phoning around for somewhere to help me. I don't know why I didn't know to call you. Um, people have been calling me an alcoholic for many years by this point. You would think I would know to call Alcoholics Anonymous, but I didn't. Um, so I'm phoning like the government numbers in the front of the phone book. I'm phoning like treatment facilities. I don't even know where I'm phoning. And what I'm getting is voicemail. Um, and then anywhere somebody answered, what I'm getting is, uh, you know, oh, hey, you need to talk to Dave. Dave does intakes. He'll be in Monday at 9 o'clock. And I'm like, Monday? Like, do you guys know what I could do to myself between now and Monday? Like, I'm going to forget I was going to get sober by Monday. Like, this is, this can't wait till Monday. Um, And eventually, um, I got on the phone with somebody who knew about Alcoholics Anonymous and gave me the number to our intergroup central office. And I want to thank all the telephone volunteers and intergroup central office volunteers. It's because of our local ones that I'm alive today, because I didn't have to wait till Monday. There was an alcoholic on the other end of that phone. And he, um, God love him, I was sober now about 14 hours for the first time, and I can't tell you how many years, and I was insane. Um, He did everything right. He's like, you know, we could do a 12-step call, send a couple women to come meet you, take you to your first meeting. All I hear is we're sending women to get you and take you. And and I'm like, how do you know where I live? And I'm like hanging up and phoning back. Like I'm absolutely out of my mind. And this guy um, was so good. He just stuck with it. I made him tell me where every meeting was for the next three days, which in Vancouver, there's about, I don't know, a thousand meetings a week. So, like, he's giving me, like, literally hundreds of meetings. I'm pretending to write them down. I'm writing nothing down. Um, I just didn't want him to know which meeting I was going to so he couldn't send the women that were going to capture me. Um, Like, it was all complicated. Um, And eventually, he mentioned that there was a meeting at the Vancouver Detox. And I went to the Vancouver Detox meeting, because I'd been there hundreds of times. Um, That was the drunk tank. And um, I could go there, because there were going to be people like me there. And so what I didn't know is that's a service meeting. Typically, if you go to a detox meeting, you have some recovery, something to offer. You're going there to help the people who are... I kind of didn't get that. I just showed up, because it was the one place I didn't feel too disgusting and humiliated to walk into. 
Um, so what I did was I walked up to the animal door. I don't know how you guys do it here, but the the van that they put you in backs up to the door and they kind of push you out the door into the detox. You don't walk in through the front door when you, when you come in that way. So that's how I went to my first AA meeting was I walked up and knocked on the animal door and asked them to let me in. Um, and they did. Um, and, and the rest is history. Um, and, and that all happened because um, good members of Alcoholics Anonymous were willing to give up their time. So another alcoholic didn't have to die of alcoholism. So my story wasn't my mom's story. So my story wasn't my dad's story. Um, so I could experience recovery and, and not have to die that way and not have to live that way. Um, and I'm sure they had other things to do, um, but they didn't that day. They gave of their time, the person who chaired that meeting. So this alcoholic didn't have to die of alcoholism. And, and that is where my passion comes from um, because I know what's out there for us if we're not in here. And, um, and I'm not, not willing to experience that. And I'm not willing to do anything less than my best to make sure that you don't have to experience it either. Um, but I did not land uh, gracefully and gently in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, surprise! Um, it, it's, it's kind of funny that I, I have this service role today. Um, I did serve as a delegate to your general service conference. I currently serve um, as a trustee on your general service board and as a director on your AAWS board. Um, that's not bad for somebody who couldn't get ID at one point. <laughs> um, I, I didn't used to be allowed to travel into your country um, for a long time. Um, you know, that for me to go from there to here is, is pretty remarkable. And one of the things that, um, that made all of that possible um, was that people let me be sick in Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I was blessed to be surrounded by some old-timers who had seen people not clean up before they came to AA, and they weren't afraid of the fact that I was detoxing in the rooms or that my behavior was all over the place or whatever, because I I wasn't staying sober. I never missed my home group. I joined a group right away. I went there no matter what condition I was in, and I love those members. Um, I love those members, and they taught me about the traditions without me even realizing it. And it would be like, Carolyn, you can't do that here because other people need to stay sober. Um, Let's go for a walk. We can have a talk. They never made me feel like I wasn't welcome or I wasn't welcome back. But they also didn't put up with behavior that was going to make it impossible for other alcoholics to do what they needed to do for their sobriety. I was barred from meeting rooms more than one. There's probably somebody here who's been to Vancouver. Uh, We've got a really great meeting at the dugout called the Out to Lunch Bunch. This is right in the downtown east side. It is like really hard to, to get barred from somewhere like that. I did because um, I um, attacked somebody who hurt my feelings because that was my um, communication skills. And um, my name went up on the whiteboard. Nobody was pointing at me saying, there's a future delegate to our general service conference. I bet she'll be on the board one day. They were having business meetings saying, good Lord, what do we do? Um, eventually, um, after yet another relapse, I came back. Um, now, I was going to five, six, seven, eight meetings a day because you could do that where I live. Um, and then I vanished, whoops, um, like just poof, like did, just vanished for two weeks and then like magically reappeared. And uh, when I magically reappeared, the passenger side of my car was missing. My arm's in a sling. I've got stitches in my head. And I just slide into the meeting and sit down like nobody's going to notice, right? Because I, I was just sort of sick of announcing that I drank again. And uh, I, I wasn't fooling anybody. Um, it turns out, you guys have seen stuff like that before. 
Um, but what did happen um, was a couple of these guys who were really serious about Alcoholics Anonymous took one look at me and realized I was dying inside the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, we are a fellowship of people, and that means all people um, who, who share our experience, strength, and hope with one another, which means all of us. And these two good men in Alcoholics Anonymous carried a message to this female alcoholic because I was too sick to listen to the women. And they said things to me that I hadn't heard before that needed to be said. People were previously telling me things like, um, you know, oh, don't worry, honey, you'll be fine. And these guys were like, you're not fine. You're not going to be fine. There is nothing fine happening here. You are going to die of alcoholism if you don't get your hands on a solution. And I didn't like what they were telling me, but I felt it was true. And, um, you know, you're right where you're supposed to be. Don't worry. You're right where you're supposed to be. I'm like, wow, I haven't heard a word during this entire meeting because I'm trying to figure out a way to kill myself that's not going to hurt too bad. And then you're going to close the meeting reading the promises and tell me about how you're happy, joyous, and free? This isn't where I'm supposed to be. This is not as advertised. Um, Something is wrong. Um, And these guys were like, oh, hell no, you are not supposed to be there. Nobody's supposed to be there. It's our job to get you out of there to here, to this place where you can live happily and usefully whole. Um, And they took me through the book until it was time to sort of force me to get a, a woman sponsor to work with. And by then I was well enough to do so. Um, and they never did let me go. Um, those two men still follow my sobriety today. Um, and, and it just means everything. One of them walked me across to uh, a walk-in clinic because I looked like I needed to see a doctor. I was bright yellow. I looked like one of the Simpsons. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought everything was fine because um, I you know, was pretty used to not feeling well. Um, and I left that walk-in clinic in an ambulance. It turns out my pancreas was failing and I was really sick. Um, and, and it's these, these good members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they took me through that book, um, and I argued and fought and kicked and screamed, but you know what else I did? I worked the steps. And I don't suggest arguing, fighting, kicking, and screaming, but I am here to tell you that if that is the best you have to offer, this program might work for you anyway. Um, based on my experience, and that's because I kept doing it. I never stopped trying. And my trying got better every time I tried. It took me three and a half times to do a fourth step that included the truth. <laughs> oh my God, you guys. Um, that, that's a, that I could go on about that forever. But I eventually had to a fourth step that included the truth. I'd read ahead and saw that I was going to have to admit what I did to other people. And I was like, oh no, I've got to dress up what these people did to me so I seem like less of a psychopath. Um, But eventually I did an inventory that included the truth and I I shared it with with the sponsor. And and that was the the real beginning of real recovery. It was the first time I'd actually done anything in in many years. And by then I had an understanding of, of our common problem. This disease had been thoroughly explained to me. They'd painstakingly taken me through the doctor's opinion and more about alcoholism. When I got tripped up over a higher power, they're like, don't worry, take a look at this. And do you know what they did? Instead of arguing with me about what God is or isn't, they read through step 12 and said, look, Carolyn, having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps. Have you done these steps? And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, how do you think you know what the result is? How about you just put one foot in front of the other and actually work this program and let's see what happens. And, and they wouldn't fight with me. And it's life-saving. 
<laughs> and, uh, and so next thing you know, I finished this final fourth step that concluded some truth. I did this fifth step, and um, I was able to um, start to understand my defects and start to understand the need for a power greater than myself, not only to provide that defense against the next drink, but also to straighten out some of the sickness that, that caused me to live the way I lived and, and, and hurt myself and others the way that I did, all that stuff that came out in those defects. And everything happened for me um, in the ninth step. Um, everything. And it was a, a messy list. And I had by then what I consider spectacular sponsorship. I had outstanding warrants. Um, I had things I hadn't been caught for. I had something I was about to be caught for. <laughs> I was in two relationships. Um, I was um, financially supporting myself through something I've net learned now is, is commonly referred to as embezzlement. And, um, and, and that thing when they say don't change anything for the first year, no major changes. Some of us need to make major changes in that first year. Um, a lot of that stuff had to change. And I had big, ugly amends to make. I had these, these deceased parents... Um, and I had literally run back and forth all over Canada, leaving nothing but garbage in my wake. And um, this sponsor, this beautiful sponsor, um, when we got to that ninth step, she said, you know, Carolyn, as a sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous, what we have to offer is our experience. And I don't have experience with everything you've been through here. So what I'd like us to do is maybe find somebody who has some experience in a couple of these areas where I don't, so they can help us figure out how you can best make your amends without doing further harm. She asked my permission to talk to a couple other members, and you couldn't make this up. She basically formed a panel. <laughs> okay, you know, outstanding warrant. Oh, I got that one. And we literally... Um, worked through this mess, um, and, and I, I, I made my amends. I, I was told in no uncertain terms, we make direct amends wherever possible. Um, and, and that is exactly what I did, because it's exactly what I was told. And, um, you know, there was a lot of things I could tell you about that, but I'll share two, three, maybe, amends stories, just because I don't think we talk enough about the ninth step. I think it's just so important. There's so many people I hear talk about how they're going to get to it, or I'm sober now, and that's good enough. And our book is specific that it's not good enough being sober now. Um, so when I went to make amends to my brother, he had participated in a 12-step program, um, and he had uh, known everything there is to know about the 12 steps. And he was ready for my amends. He actually called me and said, are, we gonna, are you going to make your amends yet? <laughs> and uh, I'm like, yeah, okay, let's do it. I showed up. I prayed. I was prepared. I did all the things. Um, and and I, we're going to do this. And he had several pages of paper to read to me for my amends. That, I didn't prepare for that. That was not at all. The book didn't say that. The sponsor didn't say that. But the spiritual preparation I did, following the instructions of a sponsor, allowed me to receive that and have ideas that don't come from me take over my thinking. This is the gift of recovery, this little pause between my best thinking and my next action and this little pause that allows my higher power to inject something in there that's better than what lives in that space. And the thought that came to me is, Carolyn, you've listened to this man never. What if you just sit and listen? And I did. And at the end I said, wow, I am so 
touched that you care so much about my sobriety that you would have put this time and energy into it. And I gave him credit. He got a couple things I missed. Um, made, made the amends I owed for the things I was prepared for. And I, and I asked him, like, hey, can we come back to some of this? I wasn't completely prepared for all of these. But, you know, and we did that. And, and that was a, a tangible example of a higher power working in my life. I made amends to an ex-boyfriend who... You know, in, in the book, it says sometimes they know about our conduct and that each situation you kind of need to decide on its own how much you're going to disclose. You don't want to involve anyone else or hurt anyone, but that there's some nuance. And uh, I had not been faithful to Johnny. Um, he knew that. This wasn't a surprise to anyone. Um, it had affected his relationships with people because he wasn't sure who I had cheated on him with and who I hadn't. And he, I asked him, like, do you have questions? Because I will tell you the truth. And he had some very specific questions that some people would suggest that maybe we shouldn't answer. But I did. And I answered honestly. Um, and it did involve some other people. Um, but he knew. It's that gaslighting thing we do when you tell somebody something didn't happen that they know 100% was true. And you deny it. And it was the, the, the most healing thing I could do was, like, I didn't tell him anything he didn't know. I just stopped gaslighting him and pretending that what he knew wasn't true. So when he did say, and what about so-and-so, I said, oh, no, that never happened. Um, and these two got their friendship back. Um, and I didn't know that Johnny was going to die in a couple years, um, that we had our friendship back and he had his friendship back. And I could go on about amends all night because I just think they're everything. Um, but the, the real bit is the life we're given. And, and to live the life we're given um, for this alcoholic requires diligent practice of our 10th and 11th steps. And that's not because I'm a good AA member or I'm going to get a gold star. I know there's those people out there and I love you. I'm not one of you. Um, I do it because I have a low pain threshold and because I love what this program gives me when I work it. And, um, and so it's really important to me, critical to me, that I'm diligent in those two steps. And when I'm working the first 11 steps, you have no choice but to engage in the 12th step. And um, that's where my enthusiasm for carrying the message to other alcoholics, whether that's indirectly through general service, where you support the systems and structures and processes that make 12-step work possible, or whether that's directly by showing up and, and working with another alcoholic, it's everything. Um, and I think about the people who gave of their time and energy for me, a hopeless case. They gave of their time and energy for me, so I didn't have to die that way, and I don't have to live that way. And you know what, what my life has been like in sobriety um, is I would hear somebody share a story like this, and I'm like, well, of course you're happy now. Everything's gone your way. Well, no, <laughs> that's not quite how it went. Um, I got a sober job. That was great. Um, someone in the program offered me a job, and then my boss relapsed. And um, they were going out and drinking lunch and coming back to the office, and I've still got a big book on my desk, because that's how we used to roll. Um, I got fired for being sober at work. Um, that actually happened. Um, I had to go out and get a job, um, and that was scary. And um, ironically, I'm still with the same company. I've been with them since 2004. Um, this whole relationship business would be a talk of its own that no one wants to hear. I was asked to be a speaker on a sex and relationships panel once, and it was so depressing. No one has ever asked me to do it again. Um, I, uh, it was, anyhow, it, it was just nothing good happened in my sobriety in that area, and I admitted defeat and gave up. 
And uh, with this company I was working for, I got transferred about half an hour away from where I lived. And uh, my sponsor told me that you're living in a new community, you act like a newcomer, you get your hands on a meeting list and you go to them um, so you can get to know the Alcoholics Anonymous where you live. And I'm like, okay. So I'm going to these meetings and there's this guy and he's going to these meetings. He's going to the same meetings as me all the time, and now we're talking, and next thing you know, and this boy meets girl on AA campus, I was done with it, like done, done, done with it. Um, next thing you know, we're going for dinner, and, um, and what was different was that we both had a program, and we both had sobriety. We both had a higher power in our lives, uh, we both had sponsorship, and it was entirely different. And the fast forward to that story um, is that the girl who was never going to get married um, got married on beautiful Galliano Island on March, or sorry, um, August 9th in 2013, halfway through my rotation as delegate because I'm not insane. And um, I was completely wrong about marriage. Um, it was beautiful because Joe was beautiful. And I was able to experience how beautiful Joe was because I was able to show up as a human being who was there to give and not just take. Um, and that's not because something good in me, that's because of what God and Alcoholics Anonymous can do with some pretty unpromising raw material. And, um, I mean, my God, I, I, would, I would take the nine years I had with Joe over... 109 years with any other person in the world. Um, it was absolutely beautiful. What I didn't know was that um, he'd be diagnosed with cancer in 2019. Um, he fought a good fight, but it, he didn't win. Um, and I've never, like, the, the God I rely on to um, live this life, to walk through the world, to stay sober. To, to go to for my sanity, to take my resentments to, to, to remove my fears. The God I rely on for that, um, I was furious with. Um, and I, I, I mean, like, when, when everything's right here and the one place you go with all of that is, is the last place in the world I wanted to go because this was the God that took my Joe away. And... Um, this program is amazing for, for two reasons. One is the decreased self-centeredness um, I quickly realized that people lose spouses every day. I don't know why. I don't know why our bodies are perishable. Um, but this wasn't something that happened to me. This wasn't the universe picking on me. And people survive these things every day sober. Um, and one reason I knew that was because people in the rooms that I attend my meetings in had the courage to share just with humility and dignity, how they walked through these things sober. So I knew it could be done, and I knew that there were members of Alcoholics Anonymous who had done it. What I didn't know was that I would be surrounded by a kind of love I had never seen before. And um, I'm, I'm happier helping other people. <laughs> I'd rather hear about, like, your problems and tell you about mine. Um, and I was humbled in a way I've never, never imagined I could be humbled. Um, and that is that these, these women I think I was helping, these women I sponsor, the women they sponsor, um, surrounded me and carried me when I couldn't ask for help. They didn't say, like, call me if you need something. They showed up and rang that doorbell at four-hour intervals with food and love until I could breathe again. And they did that because of you. And I didn't not only drink, I, I didn't want to drink. 
it didn't, it, alcohol didn't look like a solution to me in, in what was the most painful thing I've been through in my sobriety. Uh, but there is something that could have been more painful, and that's missing it. You know, and, and, and I hear it said sometimes in meetings, like, one more drink and I might have missed it all. And I don't know what God has in store for me. I never in a million years thought I'd, I'd serve you on your judgment. I don't know if you think it's funny that I, I serve you on your judgment service. I think it's pretty funny. Um, I never in a million years thought such a thing could happen. Um, I didn't know that God would bring me Joe. I, I certainly didn't know God would take him away. I, I didn't know that I'd continue to grow in sobriety by being like taken out at the knees and forced to learn how to let people love me. Um, so I don't know what the hell is going to happen next, but I'll tell you something. I'm not going to take one more drink and miss it. Um, and I don't have to because you've shown me how to work a program that's given me freedom from that. Um, and if there is ever anything I can do to make sure that no one else is finding one of us locked in a room a week after we die because this disease won again, um, there is nothing I won't do to prevent that outcome. Um, for me, for you, for, for anyone else. Um, and, and I know you share that. I can see it in your faces as I look around the room. And the power in this room to fight that disease is immense. Um, so we can't be stopped unless we stop. Um, and, and that's the power of God and Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's something that is just an immense privilege to be a part of. I can't even begin to tell you how grateful I am to be here with you, um, how undeserving I feel of, of the privilege and, and the love I've been shown, and just how much I look forward to um, seeing and hearing some of you over the, what's left of the weekend. So thank you. Thank you.